So I'm Matt Sparks, Head of Sustainability at Linklaters. I'm here at COP on the Wednesday of the first week um, with Olivia McKendrick and Chris Rainier of the Cultural Sanctuaries Foundation, an organisation that we've got to know well over the past few months um, and made a donation to earlier in the year, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, so Chris and Olivia, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. And actually, before we get started talking about the foundation, um, Olivia, um, some in the firm, believe it or not, won't know too much about your history with <laughs> Linklaters, so perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Certainly. My, um, my life pre-cultural sanctuaries. So I, I, was, um, I started at Linklaters in 1993. My first seat was in the corporate department, and um, I was then at the firm for 24 years, working mainly in the London office, but also in the Shanghai, Hong Kong and New York offices. Um, with a with a one year comment to what is now Bank of America Merrill Lynch as well, um, and sort of spent the last ten years of my time at the firm as a corporate partner, and um, remember those days extremely fondly. Loved, loved, loved working at the firm. And as most people uh, said about me, they thought I had a sort of magenta, like a stick of rock, a magenta line going through me, and that I'd need to be carried out feet first. Um, but as as life had it, I moved on to other things uh, just a few years ago. Super. Thanks, Olivia. And Chris, perhaps a bit, bit, bit about you before the foundation. Wonderful. Well, thank you for uh, having us uh, today to be able to talk. My history really began back in the 1980s when I was a photographic and conservation assistant to uh, the noted landscape photographer Ansel Adams. And of course, his photography he used very powerfully as a social tool to protect uh, national parks and wilderness areas in uh, the United States. And I really began to understand the power of photography and of course conservation. Uh, that eventually led uh, on to a number of different projects, but uh, most specifically working with National Geographic as a National Geographic Fellow and photographer. I co-directed a number of programs on uh, indigenous knowledge, uh, protecting um, endangered languages and endangered traditional knowledge. And over those 20 years, I really began to understand the connection between culture, traditional culture, and the need uh, to protect biodiversity. And so um, we evolved a whole uh, series of projects around the world of empowering indigenous people uh, to preserve, maintain, and amplify their knowledge. Uh, and Olivia and I went to uh, the Paris Climate Accord in 2015 and really had a light bulb moment of realizing that not enough was being done in the conservation arena around uh, amplifying the traditional knowledge and their role and ability and responsibility uh, to protect biodiversity. So we created the Cultural Sanctuaries Foundation out of really Paris and that um, powerful moment in 2015. Fantastic. So COP here in Glasgow is a perfect chance to Absolutely. reflect upon that. So do you want to talk a little bit more about the foundation, what the priorities are, the objectives and, and how, you about, how you go about doing, doing the work? Yeah, so we're the Cultural Sanctuaries Foundation. We're a UK charity and a US registered charity. But our core mission is to protect culture, to protect conservation. Now, it may be that some people listening 
aren't sure of the connection. Why is culture connected to conservation? And the, the, the key thing to remember is that 80% of the world's wilderness is lived on by indigenous peoples, 80%. So if we protect that land, we basically protect the planet. And indigenous peoples are the best guardians of that land. It's proved now that if you have indigenous guardianship, indigenous people looking after their land, it is better for the biodiversity, for the wildlife, the plant life, it is better than that land being protected as a national park. So where in the past you might think, you know, you put people, people in the bad side of the scales, wildlife on the good side of the scales, actually it's simplistic to see it like that. There's one combined ecosystem and indigenous communities around the world are the protectors and our motto at the cultural sanctuaries is that we try and protect the protectors. And is that approach still different? You were obviously a bit ahead of the game when you came up with it. Are you seeing a shift? in we, the sector now in terms of attitudes a towards massive land. shift between paris in 2015 and here we are in 2021 in glasgow there's hundreds of indigenous groups from all over the world represented uh, even the opening day with the world leaders were three or four indigenous uh, activists that were speaking i think people are beginning to realize that in fact we're all in this together and what we need to do is add more seats to the table of the human dialogue and specifically the scientific dialogue around including indigenous knowledge and indigenous people. And I would I would add that what I think in in Paris just six years ago, I think a lot of people there saw indigenous people in this context as the victims of climate change, not part of the solution for climate change. And people thought about indigenous peoples being on the front line, seeing their forests destroyed, the inhabitants of the South Pacific Islands, which will inevitably sink under the waves as, as ocean levels rise. And actually now there's a shift to actually, yes, that's still all true, but also not thinking of indigenous peoples as the victims, but as, as the guardians of what we want to protect. So I think that combination that increasing realization that you you combine let's call it modern science which is probably a rather incorrect word but modern science with traditional knowledge of how you look after the land you know indigenous peoples have been looking after their rivers their lands their oceans their forests their their farming in a in a sustainable way for thousands of years so we should learn from them and the the key thing that i always say is there is no one solution to this the, the way that Aboriginals protect, um, know how to intentionally burn to protect against forest fires in Australia, or the way that Indonesians know how to fish sustainably, or the way that um, herders in Central Europe know how to protect grasslands sustainably. None of those is necessarily scalable to a global solution, a sort of silver bullet for climate change. But the point is that if you, the, the, the silver bullet is the concept of respect for nature and the understanding and a connection to the land, which a lot of us have lost. You know, we sit in our flats and we drive our cars and we don't necessarily, well, we don't think that way, perhaps as we should. So I think the lesson we can all learn from indigenous people, peoples is reconnecting with nature in that sense and learning that we can't just take from it, that it needs to be a circular, sustainable, renewable economy. And that's a, that's a fantastic articulation of what 
what you're about. You're at COP, you'll be giving a talk, you've got a stand in the green zone, you've got observer status in the main arena. Um, what do you want to get from COP and you know, how does that fit with your ambitions? Well, our role uh, at the foundation is a number of different things. Here at COP, I think it is to, to get the message out, to keep beating the drum of the importance of um, uh, indigenous knowledge, uh, to amplify their message, to serve them in uh, multiple different ways of being able to be the conduit. But also we're here to uh, liaison with many of the conservation organizations. Many of the conservation organizations um, are aware of indigenous people. Um, their heart is in the right place of creating educational programs. But what seems to be missing in their role is the component that we provide, which is coming into a community where invited. We only go into communities that want us to have uh, a presence there. We build a cultural community center. We document their language. We do a biodiversity kind of profile with the local um, shamans and, and wisdom keepers around their biodiversity, but as well as scientists. And we do a profile for them that they have and keep. And we, again, document their traditional knowledge and language around conservation. So we create a, a snapshot, if you will, that is their information. And so what we're looking at is to connect with the players in the conservation field and to partner with them and to provide a very specific segment of what needs to be done in that responsibility of including indigenous people and we're also here for money <laughs> let's be clear <laughs> charities need money and we're yeah. we've what we're we're wonderfully replete with fantastic projects and partners and in indigenous communities that want to work with us um, as soon as we're allowed to go back into various countries where we're working post-COVID, what we need is 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 financing. And you know, this is a fantastic opportunity for us. We hope, with you've got Jeff Bezos here, you've got Bill Gates here, you've got. I mean, we were in a room last night, and I counted at least three multi-billionaires in the same room. And not to sound crass, but you know, actually, we need their financing. So one of the key reasons we're here is for that. Fantastic. You were in a better room yesterday than I was last night. Um, <laughs> thanks very much, Olivia. I mean, and, and I should say to people, um, there's a lot more on the projects you're currently supporting and some of your future ambitions on the foundation's website. So we should sort of direct people to that to find out more and plenty of good images, unsurprisingly. <laughs> um, you talk about money, Olivia. How can individuals get involved in supporting your work or, or more broadly sort of the, the causes that you're, you're so passionate about? Well, in a completely parochial way, you know, donations are incredibly welcome. And uh, through our website, there's a very easy button to press. But I think every single person can do their bit because, you know, sometimes it feels rather overwhelming, the whole climate change battle. But actually, if we all did a little bit more, if we all just made sure we didn't throw away food in the fridge, if we all thought better about how we buy our fashion and our clothes, if we cut out meat and dairy two days a week, if when you go and buy a lamb chop, you, you get it that's locally produced, not sent in a ship from New Zealand, which is sort of crazy. Um, and just small things that we can all do, um, walking to work, you know, recycling, all of the things. But actually, if you add all those, all those 
if, if we all did that and we all did all of those things, it would make a huge impact. Just one of the things I saw this morning walking to meeting you, Matt, was a sign that said that food waste, if it was a country, is the third largest emitting country in the world. Now, surely we can all pull together to, to do that. So yes, we can't necessarily change how planes fly. Not us, in, we can't individually do that. That is being done, hopefully. But we can all do our bit pushing towards that end goal. And then you've, you can sort of take control back and feel you're part of the solution, not part of the problem. And one of the striking things at COP is the way that you know, sectors are coming together to have those conversations. Mm. And I suppose finally, just a sort of closing, closing thoughts. So, you know, what what can business do? And that's you know, either as law firms like like we are, like many of our clients, of course. You know, what 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 role can we play in in tackling some of the challenges that you're seeing in your in your day jobs? Well, I think one thing I would mention is that I don't know about you, but I think until a few years ago, I really thought of the energy sector as the problem. And yes, it is a huge part of the problem, but there's, there are solutions to be found in the agricultural sector, the transportation sector, the food sector, every sector you can think of. So let's not demonise anyone in particular. Let's all come together. I couldn't agree more. But actually, the irony, too, is, of course, it's Finance Day here at COP today. And those very groups you've been talking about are at the heart of the solution absolutely. as well these days, aren't they? So absolutely. absolutely. And Chris, any sort of closing reflections? You know, I think the the... The wonderful thing that I see here at COP, there's a certain level of cynicism that's coming through the media, but there's remarkable things that even in the last 24 hours have been accomplished. A commitment to stop cutting the forest by 2030. That's remarkable. That would not have happened five, six years ago when we were at Paris. Uh, and, you know, the, the methane issues. Yes, the devil is in the details, but I think what's beginning to happen is people are really understanding on a profound level, it is time, it is code red. We do need to all come together and save this planet because we have no other choice. Brilliant. And that's a very optimistic note on which to finish. So uh, Chris, Olivia, thank you very much. Do take a look at the website. Please take a look at the website. Um, and we'll be hearing more from the foundation, I'm sure, in due course, um, maybe in person if the opportunity allows, but certainly um, through the work of um, sustainability team and as i say directly from olivia and chris in due course enjoy cop best thank of luck you. and thank um, so thanks much. very much for sparing the time oh pleasure thank you